We are in our second Advent sermon in this series, From the Seed to the Tree. We are looking in a special way at that seed promise as it's developed in Scripture. And we saw last Lord's Day how that seed promise, the promise of a Redeemer to come was first manifest to our first parents in Genesis 3.15, and and you will know that that seed is carried through the ark in the loins of Noah, and then that seed is again reiterated in the promise that God gives to Abraham. We're going to look in a special way at that this morning, and then to David, and then that seed promise is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Uh, He is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. He is the offspring of the virgin. He is the long-awaited redeemer. And we're looking this morning at the second of the nativity hymns in Luke's gospel. We're looking at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67 and reading down to verse 79. This is what theologians have called the Benedictus. It is the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the redeemer. And it is the second of the nativity hymns in Luke's gospel. And so we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67, reading down to verse 79. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of scripture open to be reading along with me. And now, as Luke is in that nativity narrative about the announcement of the birth of Christ and about the announcement of the birth of John, the forerunner of the Christ, Um, we now read these words, and his, that is John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of his enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise or the day spring from on high shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you are anything like me, um, one of your favorite things to do is to sing Christmas hymns, nativity hymns. Um, Sometimes I get in the spirit so early, I just go ahead and skip ahead earlier than Thanksgiving and start playing Christmas music. Um, You can't teach somebody that. You either have it or you don't. And um, there is a reason why we love Christmas hymns so much, because they are so full of praise to God. They are so full of capturing the essence of the joy and the peace and the exaltation that God deserves for bringing the Redeemer into the world. Um, the majority of our Christmas hymns capture that so well. And, and yet, as, as I was 
preparing for this season and this month this year, and as I was setting out the sermon series that I would do, and I was thinking about uh, this sermon in particular and, and focusing in a focused way on Jesus as being the seed of Abraham, and I started looking through those many Christmas hymns that we know and love so well, I realized that there is not one Christmas hymn that focuses on Jesus being the seed of Abraham that I could find. And, and then as I started going through the Trinity hymnal, I realized that there's only one hymn in the entirety of the hymnal that is focused on God's dealing with Abraham, the God of Abraham praise. And as I thought about that, and I thought about this passage that we would look at this morning, and I thought about the rest of the New Testament, I realized what, what a great deficiency we have, that we, we have not adequately come to understand that we cannot understand Christmas unless we understand the Abrahamic covenant. And, and so important and foundational is God's dealings with Abraham that we cannot fully appreciate the gospel unless we get Abraham. And the entirety of the New Testament fleshes that out. But what's interesting is that in the first two of the nativity hymns in Luke's gospel, Mary's Magnificat, here in chapter 1, just before this, verses 46 through 55, notice the last line. Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed, his offspring forever. Mary understood that what was happening in her womb had everything to do with the promises made to Abraham. And then Zechariah, and if I had to pick out one verse out of this uh, second nativity hymn that we would focus on, it is there in verse 72 that god has promised to show mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father abraham both mary and zachariah understand that what's happening in the birth of christ and the birth of the forerunner of christ has everything to do with god fulfilling his covenant promises christmas is about god fulfilling his covenant promises made to abraham now, I want us to consider this morning two things, and this, uh, this song really divides naturally into two sections. The first, I want us to consider Zechariah blessing God for the Messiah, and you'll see that there in verse 67 through 75. And then the second part is Zechariah blessing God and blessing now the forerunner of the Messiah, the son who has been promised to he and Elizabeth in their old age. He is blessing God for the Messiah. He is pronouncing a blessing on his son who is going to make way for the Messiah. And everything that Zechariah does is shrouded in joy and praising and blessing. By the way, that's where we get the word benedictus. It is the Latin for the first word there in the song in verse 68, blessed. This is, this is Zechariah blessing God. He is bursting forth in exaltation. Now, as we consider Zechariah blessing God for the, the Messiah, I want to just first note that you'll remember that Zechariah was a priest serving in the temple, and uh, you'll remember that an angel had appeared to him in his older age and had told him that he and his aged wife were going to have a son. And you'll remember that Zechariah didn't believe 
that that was going to happen. Very much like Sarah didn't believe what God had said to Abram and she about them having a child in their old age. There are these sort of parallels in the scripture. You're meant to put them together. Wait a minute. This sounds an awful lot like God's dealings with Abraham and Sarah. And now it's happening again at that point when God is fulfilling everything in redemptive history. But, but you'll remember that Zechariah couldn't talk until finally he said, according to the angel, his name shall be called John against the wishes of his relatives. And then you get the sense that no sooner has he uttered those words after John has been born and he is being circumcised, his name is John, the very next thing he does is he burst forth in praise to God for what God is doing in a miraculous way in fulfilling everything he had promised in the Old Testament. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican theologian, puts it this way, praise is the first word that falls from the mouth of Zechariah as soon as his dumbness is removed and his speech restored. He begins with the same expression that St. Paul begins with in several of his letters, blessed be the Lord. You might think about Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might think about 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is, he is, he is entering in on a doxology to God. And, and in a sense, he is singing a benediction to God, a doxology, and he is pronouncing blessing on God because God is worthy of of being praised. You know, when we sing hymns, and, and I don't know about you, there are many times I sing and my heart is not engaged. But in those times when your heart is engaged, something is happening that is almost inexplicable in the soul of a believer. God is doing something in the souls of his people that then uh, resounds to him and, and returns to him in praise. Think about that. What does God want for you? He wants you to praise him for all of his mercy, all of his redeeming grace, and everything that he's done. We don't have an austere God who says, work harder, try more, do more. We have a God that commands praises. You know, Zechariah is just really following what the psalmist did, as was Mary. And in fact, he, we're going to see that he is, he is going to weave together lots of Old Testament citations in his praise. He is, he is showing in the fullness of time what it is to praise God for redemption. Notice, um, notice this, that the very first thing he says is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, you'll remember that Israel is under Roman domination, and there are loads of writers that will say, Zechariah doesn't really understand what he's singing about. He thinks that there's going to be deliverance from political oppression. And there may be an element of truth to that. Zechariah certainly speaks better than he knew, and he says better than he knows. We know more than he did. And, and yet, I, I don't think Zechariah is merely thinking in terms of political deliverance from Herod and from the Romans. I, I think that he is drawing off of what God did for his people in the Old Covenant. When was the last time God visited and redeemed his people? When he brought them out of Egypt. Uh, 
And in this sense, Zechariah sees in God coming to his people, looking on their afflictions and, and delivering them with a strong arm and an outstretched hand. He is seeing in that a model of what God is going to do for the spiritual deliverance of his people. In a very real sense, he is singing a song of a new spiritual exodus. Isn't that awesome? He has visited and redeemed his people. He understands from Mary's testimony that the Redeemer is coming. The long-awaited Redeemer. And he's going to come into the world. And notice, I think he knows that it is God coming. He says, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, very briefly, I'll show you why I think he understands this is spiritual. Notice verse 74 and 75. After saying that God is going to deliver from the hands of enemies, he says that we may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Those are spiritual blessings of God. And then notice when he pronounces the blessing on John the Baptist in verse 77, that, that, that John was going to pave the way for the Lord, and, and the Lord was going to bring salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins. So he is, he is praising God for spiritual redemption. Um, there's nothing that should stir our souls so much as the redemption that God has wrought in the Lord Jesus. I'm sometimes ashamed when I think about how we must look in our home when we're watching college football and Georgia doesn't lose a game and, and we're shouting and we're jumping up and yet we don't do that, do we? Whoever you like, we don't do that as we ought over the redemption that we have in Christ. There, is, there ought to be incredible joy bursting from our hearts that in the coming of Christ, God has visited and redeemed his people. He has made the Lord Jesus a horn of salvation. Now, that, that imagery is from the oxen. The horn was the, that was the symbol of his strength, that, that Christ coming into the world is going to be the horn of salvation. He is going to be the very power of God unto salvation. I had a, a friend call me this week, burdened for his sister who is... Um, strung out on drugs and in the gutter. And he said to her, rightly, he said, if you die, you're going to be judged. God is going to judge you. And she said, I know. And, and I, I said to my friend, but don't forget to give her the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The good news of what God has done in Jesus is power. It is the very horn of God's salvation that God has raised up out of the house of David. Well, um, I want us to consider what Zechariah does here. He does something very interesting as he reflects on redemption and what God is doing in bringing Christ and in bringing the, his own son as the forerunner of Christ. Uh, Zechariah is looking back on redemptive history and and he's looking back on what God has promised. And he's going to do something very interesting. Notice he starts, first of all, with the house of David. Now, remember, Zechariah 
was not of the tribe of Judah and not from the house of David. He was a Levite serving as a priest. And so what Zechariah is recognizing is that Mary, who is not yet married to Joseph, who we know is from the line of David, that, that Mary is from the tribe of Judah and that she is a descendant of David and that God is fulfilling the promises he made to the house of Judah that he would raise up a redeemer from David and that God was fulfilling that by knitting together the redeemer in the womb of Mary. But then notice he goes into the Old Testament again in verse 70. Notice this. He says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. And if you go back and you read the prophets, one of the interesting things that you see is that while God is prophesying judgment on Israel for all of its wickedness, the reason he doesn't destroy Israel entirely is because the Lord will continually say through the prophets, I will remember mercy to the house of David. I will remember Judah. I will do this because of my promises. So the prophets were constantly prophesying that God was going to have mercy and that mercy was going to come from the house of David. And then Zechariah does something else. He goes back even further and he goes to the very foundation of redemptive history and he goes to Abraham. Now, I want us to most fully focus on this this morning. Notice verse 72 and 73 again. Zechariah says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Um, Eric Alexander has captured the essence of this so well, and you've got to listen carefully. He says, there is an unbroken line in Scripture from Abraham to Bethlehem. There is an unbroken line in Scripture from Abraham to Bethlehem. We see this in Matthew 1.1. In the first verse of the gospel written and bound together in our Bibles, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew takes it right back to Abraham and says, that's the foundation. And Eric Alexander says, you cannot begin to understand God's dealings with people in Jesus apart from God's dealings with Abraham in history. So you cannot get Bethlehem unless you understand Abraham. You cannot understand what God is doing in you unless you get what God was doing with Abraham. Now, that is going to get fleshed out in the New Testament. Paul is going to bring out all the contours of a theology uh, of Abraham, most notably in the book of Galatians, where, where Paul is going to say, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's. Um, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Uh, it was not enough that he would be the father of the Jewish people. It's not enough that God would redeem ethnic, we could say this, ethnic Old Covenant Israelites. God was always planning to redeem nations. And 
That promise was given to Abraham, and God said, I'm going to be a God to you and your descendants after you. And God said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing. And he said to Abraham, everyone that blesses you, I will bless. Everyone who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the nations will be blessed. And then we understand, don't we, that ultimately God is saying it's going to be through the seed of Abraham. That it's not Abraham himself that brings the blessings, it's going to be the ultimate seed And we know that's not Isaac because we read so little of Isaac in the book of Genesis. We know almost nothing of Isaac because it's not about the typical son of Abraham. It's about the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Notice when Abraham had gone to offer up Isaac and he had spared, he had not spared his son. God had spared Isaac. The Lord came to Abram in Genesis 22, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. In your seed shall all nations be blessed. You see, Zechariah understands God is fulfilling that in sending Christ. Um, you know, when God revealed himself to Moses, when he came to visit and redeem Israel, and he gave him that great name, I am, he then followed it up and said, say to the people of Israel, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is my name forever. God bound himself to his promises. Now, there was nothing special about Abraham. Abraham was no different than you or me. No different. In fact, the Bible says he was an idolater on the other side of the Jordan when God called him. Paul will tell us in Romans 4 that God only justifies the ungodly by grace. Abraham was ungodly. God justified him, had mercy on him. What makes the Abrahamic covenant so great is the God of Abraham giving him those great promises that he fulfilled in Christ. You know, one easy way to understand your Bible, and I wish somebody had taught me this when I was young, is to look at what God does with Abraham in Genesis and then jump all the way to Christ and see how it's as if those promises go directly from Abraham to Jesus. They're passed down directly from Abraham to Christ. You know, Jesus is the true Israel of God. He is the true son of Abraham. He is the covenant-keeping redeemer. Uh, he came to fulfill everything that was promised in himself and embody in himself everything that God had told to Abraham. How would Abraham become the father of many nations? Because God the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Um, Jesus would redo Israel's history. Um, He would go down into Egypt, remember? The son of Abraham would go into Egypt as a baby. He'd come out of Egypt. He'd go through the waters of baptism. He'd go up on the mountain. He'd re-give the law like Moses had. He'd come down from the mountain. He'd go into the wilderness. Forty days, Israel had been in the wilderness 40 years. He redoes what Israel didn't do. And then he fulfills the kingly and the prophetic ministry until he is exiled on the cross. 
and then he is restored in the resurrection because he is the true Israel of God, the true son of Abraham. Now, I remember as a very young Christian turning on the radio and hearing a program, maybe I've told you this, it was called Israel Today. And I remember thinking, I was a brand new believer, what about Jesus today? Like, really, if you care more about the nation of Israel than Jesus, there's a problem. That's a problem. He is fulfilling. Zechariah understands that. He understands that God is fulfilling the oath that he swore to Abraham. Um, how, how could Zechariah do that? Well, I would just put this to you this morning. Zechariah knew the word of God so well that when the Holy Spirit came on him and he made this prophetic song, what was issuing out of him, what was in him. And so if we want to be able to praise God the way Zechariah did, we have to have God's word in us the way it was in him. You get the sense that Zechariah was one of those of the remnant of Israel who were hoping and longing for redemption. Remember Anna the prophetess, when she came out of the temple after seeing Christ, she went and spoke to all in Jerusalem who were looking for redemption. Well, there weren't many, but there was a little enclave, and Zechariah was part of that, and he was full of God's word. Ryle again says this, let us learn to rest on promises and embrace them as Zacharias did. Let us not doubt that every word of God about his people shall as surely be fulfilled as every word about them has been fulfilled in the past. Our safety is secured by promise. Don't miss that. Our safety is secured by promise. Our acquittal on the last day is secured by promise. We shall not come into condemnation, but presented spotless before the Father. Let us embrace God's promises. Let us never let them go. They will never fail us. Do you see that in Zechariah? He is so confident that God is going to do what God has promised, that we would be that kind of people. Not, not a sort of presumption, not a sort of presumption that, you know, I really hope this is going to happen, so I'm going to just, I'm going to presume that God's going to do that for me. But what God has spoken in his word, that he will fulfill every promise. And here's the glorious truth. He's already done it all in Christ. It's, it's already as good as done. The Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1, and this is one of the most important verses in the Bible, in him, in Christ, all the promises of God, not some, not part of them, all the promises of God are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God. That means when you look at a promise like, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you can say fulfilled in Christ for me. When you hear a promise like, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, fulfilled in Christ. When you hear the promise, I will be a God to you, and you will be my people, fulfilled in Christ. That's the point of that. We, we are to have our souls anchored in the fulfillment of God's promises. Well, secondly, I want us to just very briefly consider the blessing on the forerunner of Christ. Notice Zechariah turns his attention to this son he's had, and he says, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins 
because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, you may not know this, but the name John means mercy. Very simply put, it means mercy. And maybe you've noticed this already. Zechariah has a fixation on the idea of the mercy of God. Um, Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Mercy is God not dealing with us as he ought to deal with us. Um, The Bible will call them the tender mercies of our God. Isn't that sweet? The infinite God who should send everyone to hell for our unrighteousness reveals himself to be a God who is full of tender mercy. If that doesn't, if that doesn't soften your heart, nothing will. If you're just a really hard-hearted person, until the tender mercy of God in Christ softens your heart, nothing will. Notice Zechariah um, is fixated on that. Notice verse 72, that God is going to show mercy. And then notice in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, what is that mercy manifest in? It's manifested in several things. First, I'd again point out, verse 77, it's manifested in the forgiveness of sins. You need God to forgive your sins. The greatest need that you and I have is that God would forgive your sins. You know, oftentimes when we're doing the prayer of confession, and and I'm silently confessing sin, Um, that has to do with my sin toward others, I sometimes catch myself and will pray that prayer that David prayed against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil. Our sin is first and foremost against God, so the greatest need we have is that God would forgive us. And in his tender mercy, in the coming of Christ, the chief thing is the forgiveness of sins. When the apostles preach in the book of Acts, the main thing is that God has sent Jesus into the world to give forgiveness. And then the other thing is that he gives sanctification. Notice back in verse 75 that that we would serve him without fear, without servile fear, without being afraid of him crushing us and destroying us, without, without us living our lives trying to somehow appease God, but we will serve him without that sort of fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. God's tender mercies result in him forgiving our sins, in him sanctifying us. The, the hymn writer captures this so well when he says, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. That's what's being promised here. God sent Jesus to free us from sin's guilt and its power. Now, You know how he does this, and I'll just close with this. Um, God reiterated his promises to Abraham in Genesis 22 after Abraham was going to offer up Isaac, and God spared him, and and he says, because you did not spare your son, I'm going to do this for you. But really, what God is saying in saying that is that I am going to fulfill the oath and the promises I made to you because I am not going to spare my son. You see how that's inextricably linked. The promises made to Abraham are fulfilled because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Um, Ian Duguid, 
And this is the last thing I'll leave you with. He looks at how Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant in his death on the cross. And, and this is what he says. He says, the one who was promised the nations of the earth as his inheritance came to his own people and they did not receive him. The one who was promised that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron was scourged by Roman soldiers. The only sinless one was given a criminal's death lifted up on the cross, a fate that the law regarded as a sign of God's judgment, the light of the world. And here, remember, he's called the day spring on high visiting us, the light of the world, hung under a darkened sky, the sun itself being ashamed to witness such a travesty of justice. If ever there was a man in the reality gap, it was Jesus. You see, for Jesus to fulfill the promises to Abraham, he would have to have all of the covenant curses promised by God put on him to give us the blessings of Abraham. Now, what does that mean for us? I'll close with this. That means that you can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to gain the blessings of God, but to receive and rest on the one who has done everything to secure them for you. They are entirely by grace and mercy. They are entirely out of your control to secure or to confirm. But God, in his great grace and mercy, has already accomplished everything to give you the blessings of Abraham, to deliver you from Satan, sin, and death, to give you an everlasting inheritance, to give you hope beyond the grave, and even in this life, to give you that deep sense of the forgiveness of your sins because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, and to give you the grace to serve him in holiness and righteousness without fear all the days of your life. Isn't that marvelous? It's all yours because of what Christ has done. I would challenge you this morning to ask yourself the question, do I really believe that? And am I really trusting in that and in him? I would then ask you uh, if you are filling your minds and hearts with the promises of God. You know, what enabled Zechariah to do what he did at this point was because he was full of the promises of God from the Old Testament. We must be a people who have our minds and hearts flooded with all that God has promised in redemptive history and then how he has fulfilled it in Christ. And then I would challenge all of us um, not to go through the motions when we sing God's praises. We're going to sing the song of Zechariah after the supper. And I would encourage you to really ask the Lord to enable you to sing from the heart with the sort of joy and overflow of a sense of God's bountiful mercy and goodness as we sing his praises. That's, that's what God wants from us as a congregation. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you'd give us a newfound sense of astonishment that you have fulfilled all of the promises that you made to Abraham. You have fulfilled them in the Son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you are the one 
who has received the nations as an inheritance, the one in whom all the families of the earth are blessed. We thank you that we are part of that group of people, that multitude too great to number. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done everything by your sinless life, your death, and your resurrection to secure the blessings of God for us. Would you make us to know those blessings today? Would you give us a greater love for your word and your promises? And we pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater desire to sing your praises from the heart as Zechariah did, reflecting on all of your tender mercies and redemptive history. Lord, do that for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.